Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. From cholera and Ebola to HIV, AIDS, and West Nile virus, the threat of epidemics and pandemics is one that looms large. Discussions about these diseases and other global health issues are taking place in St. Louis as part of Washington University's Global Health Week. For more, here is producer Alex Hoyer. Both of my guests are science journalists who have researched, written, and been a part of film projects about global health issues. John Cohen is a staff writer with Science Magazine who has written extensively about HIV-AIDS. He was the lead reporter on a six-part PBS NewsHour series called The End of AIDS. And Carl Gierstorfer is a filmmaker and the director of documentaries on AIDS and the Ebola virus. He directed the 2015 documentary, We Want You to Live. They both receive support from the Pulitzer Center for their reporting projects, and they both join me in studio. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Thanks so much. Thank you. I was trying to find the overlap in what the two of you do, and there's a lot of it. You go your separate ways at points, but I want to talk about the overlap at first, and that is how you both became interested in spending a significant amount of time in doing HIV-AIDS research and telling that story, and I'll start with you, John. Well, I came to HIV-AIDS through kind of a funny route. I made up my own major in college in science writing, and I was fascinated by vaccines. And I was particularly interested in Jonas Salk. And when Jonas Salk began to work on an AIDS vaccine in the late 1980s, I started following his work. And that's what brought me into the world of HIV-AIDS, and that was in 1989, and I'm still covering it. How close are we to a vaccine? I wrote a book that came out in 2001 called Shots in the Dark. It took me 12 years to write. And uh, there was hope then that a vaccine was maybe 10 years away. It's still 10 years away. It's far away. Um, it's a vexing problem. There's been a lot of effort put into finding a vaccine, but it's a tough virus to beat with a vaccine. And that's just the way it is with some viruses. Some are harder than others. Ebola interestingly enough, is pretty easy to beat with a vaccine. And that's what happened in West Africa at the end of the epidemic. They tested a vaccine that appeared to work really, really well. And before we get into Ebola, Carl, how did you get interested in spending your time in trying to tell the story of HIV AIDS? I was particularly interested in where this virus came from um, and how it started to spread amongst humans. And when I was studying biology in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, there was a book coming out implicating a polio vaccine trial in the then-Belgian Congo. That was a huge controversial issue because that would have meant that by trying to manufacture a vaccine, you would be behind the creation, so to speak, of the AIDS virus. It turned out to be completely wrong, conspiracy theory. Um, but it, of course, raised the question, where really did this virus come from? How did it enter human populations? And I was very fascinated by it. And I followed that question. And I gathered papers and did interviews. And I followed that story basically for five or six years before I embarked on uh, doing a documentary on it. It's a good question. Where did AIDS virus come from? Well, originally it comes from chimpanzees. Chimpanzees have a very similar form to the pandemic form uh, of HIV. And it jumped the species barrier around 100, 120 years ago from chimps to humans, probably because people were butchering and eating chimps and were getting exposed to blood. What I showed in my film is that 
the colonial opening up of Central Africa created the conditions that this virus could spread. There was uh, there were roads being built, there were people being shuffled around, there was a very early brutal period, there were uh, rapid growths of cities. So all these factors you need for a virus to spread. So this virus basically went along with the last hundred years of uh, African history before it arrived in the U.S. There are several ways that a disease can spread. How are some of those ways that a disease can spread, Carl? Um, with respect to HIV? Sure. Well, there's there's HIV, and I'm thinking of malaria. I'm thinking of cholera. There just seems to be so many different ways that a disease can spread. Well, I think it has always to do with the biology of the virus. So each virus has other roots of how infecting its host and getting from one host to the other host. Uh, in the case of Ebola, uh, it means if you have Ebola and if you're really sick with Ebola, you express the virus even through your sweat. So it would in theory be enough to touch a person who has Ebola and then you touch your eyes or anywhere you have mucus and that's enough to get infected. Of course, with HIV, that's not the case. You really have to have blood-to-blood contact or contact with semen or uh, bodily fluids, so to speak. Um, so it's like dependent on the biology of the virus, and each virus is different. Some are highly infectious, some are different, uh, less highly infectious. Um, and, of course, from that results also how quickly then a virus spreads, and it also raises the questions how you're going to beat it. The term pandemic has already come up, and I'm curious, what is the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic? John, can you take that one? Pandemic's global. could have an epidemic in the United States that doesn't leave the United States. Uh, pandemic is everywhere, and it's at the same time. So we have uh, an epidemic of flu in this country now. There's no flu in the southern hemisphere right now. So mm-hmm. it's not a pandemic of flu right now. Mm-hmm. Who determines if something is a pandemic? Well, the World, World Health Organization makes declarations like that. It's a bit of a fuzzy word, though. I mean, the mm. distinction between pandemic and epidemic is a little academic. Well, because I was wondering if it has to do with the severity of a disease or if it has to do with how widespread it is. Be, because there could be a widespread disease that, that is relatively mild. Yeah. So and it's, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, epidemic basically means that each infected person is infecting at least one other person. Pandemic means that that's happening all over the place, not just in one city, country. You can have an epidemic in St. Louis, um, but for it to be a pandemic, it has to be a much broader range with the same idea that each person is infecting at least one other person, and that's to keep it alive. If you have each person infecting fewer than that magic number of one, it'll peter out. And then – Endemic is an adjective that means uh, that a particular area is susceptible to a disease. Endemic means that it's here all the time. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. endemic. It's just in the environment. You, you're getting a cold. It's endemic. It's mm-hmm. just around. It's around all 12 months of the year. It's endemic. When we talk about Ebola, Carl, could you remind uh, our listeners what the Ebola virus was and, and when it was really taking place? 
So the Ebola virus uh, came to first to our attention in 1976 in what was then Zaire, what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. There was an outbreak. Uh, there were Western and Congolese scientists there investigating that outbreak, and a Belgian doctor um, investigated the virus further. Um, of course, it probably didn't appear back then for the first time, but since Ebola, its natural hosts are probably bats, and it goes maybe through other animals, again, apes and monkeys, maybe infecting them, and through that route goes into humans, it probably has been breaking out for for a long time, but mostly it's like remote forest communities, and since it kills so quickly, uh, it probably hasn't made it very far. What happened in 2014 was that this virus was appearing in West Africa, in Sierra Leone and Liberia. And in these areas, there was never Ebola before. So that meant that all the doctors and the health systems weren't prepared for that virus. And if you have Ebola, the symptoms you will develop are very similar to malaria. You get very high fevers, uh, you feel sick, you get a really severe diarrhea, I had malaria once myself. Uh, it's, like, it's like a really bad flu with really bad diarrhea. And if you have Ebola, it's almost indistinguishable, indistinguishable in the beginning from malaria. So the people went into the hospitals. The doctor treated them thinking like maybe it's malaria. They didn't really know about it. But since, as I mentioned before, Ebola is so infective, it, it's really enough if you touch a person and have really close bodily contact like that you can get infected yourself, that meant that all the doctors got infected in West Africa and the health system, which was weak already, totally collapsed. What is the status of Ebola now? Well, Ebola, um, so three, we, we were talking, strictly speaking, about three countries, Guinea, uh, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, where the outbreak was going on. Liberia defeated it first, then the wave went over Sierra Leone, and then it went uh, into, in Guinea, and went on for longer, I think, until well into 2015. But now it, uh, it has stopped. Um, it has stopped, and there are no new cases in these West African countries. But there was a recent outbreak again uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So Ebola just pops up and disappears again. The problem really is if Ebola appears in, a, in an area that's densely populated and where the health system isn't really prepared for it. One of the things about the coverage that both of you have provided on science topics, specifically HIV-AIDS, is that you both seem to take a different approach to covering the disease that I've seen in a lot of other media. And I'm specifically talking about when the Ebola outbreak was happening, there really seemed, especially in the United States, to be coverage of how can the United States help these Africans uh, that are coming down with this. And, and it showed just, I remember some visual images of quarantine zones. And it struck me in reviewing the coverage that both of you do that, that you're really trying to tell the story of the people who are inflicted with the disease. Do you think that's accurate, uh, John, in, in the way that I'm describing that? Well, the strongest stories are always where the disease is spreading the most quickly and affecting the most people. Um, for HIV, there are pockets in the United States that have very high HIV new infection rates and a large number of people living with the virus. And I go to those places frequently to look at how the problem is being addressed. 
and parts of the United States mirror parts of Africa where I work or parts of Asia. Um, with Ebola, the United States had um, a great concern about spread of Ebola in the United States, but there wasn't much Ebola spreading here at all. Mm -hmm. And the really important story was happening in West Africa where Carl went. I reported on the story from the United States, not from West Africa. And it was an important story here though because it showed how the world is all connected. And it also showed the vulnerability of healthcare workers to a disease. And it showed the great reliance that much of the world has on the United States, Europe, and other wealthier parts of the world to do the research to lead to drugs and preventives like vaccines to stop these diseases. And at the end of the day in West Africa, it was the assistance from outside that sped the end of the epidemic throughout those three countries. And those countries put a tremendous amount into the effort. Don't misunderstand me. But I think we're all connected. And that's what these viruses teach us. Viruses don't know borders. They don't care. And we have a lot to learn from each other. And part of what I did with the PBS NewsHour was to show the linkage between HIV spread and response in the United States and three sub-Saharan African countries to say we're all learning from each other and that information flows in both directions. Carl, what about telling the story? Well, I specifically went to, uh, to West Africa, to Liberia, because I wanted to understand how the people there experienced that outbreak. Um, and I really wanted to, to take their perspective. So I went to an Ebola treatment center in, in rural Liberia and I followed the story of uh, one man, a father, who took his son prematurely out of quarantine, which was a stupid decision to make and which resulted in 20 deaths. And, uh, and the village uh, where most of the people died, they really wanted to kill that man. So there, there was a totally new and different dimension to it. On the other hand, to connect to what John just said is what I saw is the big organization, the WHO, which should have dealt with that situation, really, really failed. You almost can say that. They really failed. Uh, the American military did a tremendous job in West Africa, in Liberia especially, because in that outbreak situation, you need to be able to shuffle equipment around, heavy equipment, quickly, to build treatment centers and so on. Uh, also, they brought in testing labs to PCR labs to test uh, for the virus. That was really, really important. What the Liberians did and what was really, really crucial is they understood the culture. And you have to imagine a situation when I was there, the virus was in very remote areas, in villages where you had to walk six, seven hours walk in the jungle to get to these villages. You couldn't go with a motorbike. You had to walk. So you had to do a job called contact tracing. You had to find out who are the people who are most likely infected and if they're infected, with whom did they have contact? So in order to do that, you had to ask a lot of very sensitive questions. You had to find out who had relations with whom, who in that village may have had, you know, informal relations with whom, who may have had an affair with whom. Mm. Of course, the Centers for Disease Control was there, the CDC, and they had their contact traces. But you can imagine if they went into this village, nobody would talk to them. It was only the Liberians who knew how to talk with these people and who knew how to, you know, who understood the culture and who could, could win their trust. Only they 
could get that information. And I went contact tracing several times with, uh, with Liberians and CDC teams. And this is when I understood is in, in such an outbreak situation, you need, as John said, you need like a collaboration with the outside world who can bring in like planes and equipment and so on. But you also need the local cultural knowledge because without that you can't you can't gather the information that is vital to stop the outbreak. Something else I want to add to that: this West African Ebola epidemic was really first addressed by Medicine Some Frontiers, the Doctors Without Borders, and it illustrated how fragile the world is. We were relying on a volunteer, non-governmental organization to come in and identify and really be the first responders. The world needs a better response system, and this drilled that home like never before. We were too slow and waited too long for Medicine Some Frontier to basically beg for help and ring the alarm bell and say, this is spreading too quickly. We can't handle this by ourselves. And so the next time around, I hope that the world learned a lesson. Who should be in charge of preparing for this, the World Health Organization? The World Health Organization certainly is a key player in organizing the response, and they've tried to revamp how they mount rapid responses. But it's not simply the World Health Organization. All of the main players have to have a communication system that works better than the one that worked this time around. The World Health Organization certainly plays a central role, but there are many other organizations like the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, or Carl mentioned the U.S. Army, those are just two others. There, there are 20, 30 players at a large level at a very that put a lot of effort and money into responding that need to coordinate things more quickly and more efficiently because there was a lot of bumping elbows this time around. John, you mentioned the next time around. Do you think that we are more susceptible to a kind of pandemic or are we as a world community getting better at preventing one? So – as we spoke about earlier, each pathogen, each bug moves in a different way. With Ebola specifically, um, I think we're better prepared than ever before. I think the outbreak that happened last year in Congo in 2017 was contained rapidly. But it's much easier to get around now than ever before. You can go from a remote place almost anywhere other than Congo, <laughs> which Carl and I both have traveled there. It, there. There aren't roads that let you drive across the country. You want to go somewhere, you take a riverboat or you hire your own airplane sort of a thing. You just don't go from place to place. But in most of the world, you can get to a big city pretty easily, and that's what happened in West Africa. The virus got into big cities. That had never happened before where it really hit Mon you know, a Monrovia-sized community. Um, so we are in a position now where we understand that it's easier than ever for Ebola virus specifically to get to cities. Transportation is just better and better. In terms of HIV, it's the same. It's, mm -hmm. it's all over the place. It's spreading uh, at, the, um, at the rate at which people respond to it at this point in time. We have so many tools to stop the spread of HIV now. And some places aggressively use those tools. Some places don't. And the rate of spread is determined by the response, not simply by the virus. I think I read that the two countries that are the least prepared in dealing with the spread of HIV AIDS is Nigeria and Russia. Is that right? Well, it's, it's – um, 
not fair really to single them out for those reasons. They both for which str- reasons? Well, they both are struggling with different aspects of HIV spread. Mm-hmm. Um, Nigeria accounts for more transmission of mother-to-child transmission of the virus than anywhere in the world. And that's the simple – that's the simplest thing to stop. Mm-hmm. So Nigeria is really struggling with mother-to-child transmission in particular. Russia has a great deal of spread that's occurring by people sharing needles. Mm-hmm. And that has bridged over into the heterosexual population. And there are proven ways to slow the spread in people who share needles, who inject heroin and other drugs. And Russia hasn't adopted those methods. So they have a very high new infection rate for those reasons. So each place has its own epidemic and each place has its own response. And that's what I've learned covering HIV in about 50 countries now is you have to really narrow it down to – what is driving the spread in a place and what exactly is being done to stop that. And you can't do a one-size-fits-all. And even in the United States, we have many different epidemics in this country. And to say there's one way to respond, well, there really isn't. You have to tailor-make the response for St. Louis, for Washington, D.C., for San Diego, where I live. It has to be geared toward that place. Russia and Nigeria have specific problems with HIV spread, that speak to their responses. And with what you're saying really gets back to what Carl was saying about understanding a specific place. You have to you can't just go in and ask for things. You have to know people who know people. You can't just say I'm going to fix everything and go in there. Uh, Ebola was an, a striking example because Ebola infected those those that cared for one another. So First of all, it infected the doctors because people got sick. They went to the hospitals and the doctors didn't know what they have, so they got infected themselves and they died. Then the people, what would you do? You go to your families. So sick people went back to their villages and family members, those that were close to one another, cared for one another and then they died. And that was really deeply unsettling for the people there. And Liberia, Liberia went through decades of very brutal civil war. And they always said Ebola was worse than the war because during the civil war, you knew who your enemy was. But with Ebola, it was suddenly like those that were closest to you were suddenly your most mortal enemies. So it was very, very unsettling. And then the virus transmitted also through rituals. Uh, a lot of burials transmitted the virus because people wash their bodies, uh, the dead bodies, and uh, they they bury their dead. Um, so there were cultural practices that did spread the virus as well. So there was a deep cultural aspect to this whole outbreak, and one needed to understand it in order to stop it. And the Liberians always said to me, "Learning by dying." This this is how you know in in their funny humor they. They, they kind of addressed the question. The, the rate of dying was so bad that they needed, they, they were forced to understand and, uh, what the modes of transmission were. And they did change certain rituals and cultural practices, mm. which started with when I was in Liberia, nobody would shake hands. 
It's really weird. You're in a West African country. The people are really touchy and hugging one another. Nobody would shake hands. Nobody would get close to you and so on. That, of course, has changed now. Uh, I wonder, I would like to go back and I, wa- I would like to go to these villages and I wonder whether they do the bur- burials in the way they used to do them again or whether they really have stopped doing it and do it in another way. Um, but it really showed me how important culture is, first for the transmission of the virus and therefore also how to stop it. That's filmmaker Carl Giersdorfer talking about his documentary on the Ebola virus, the virus spawned an international health emergency in 2014. Also talking with producer Alex Hoyer is Science Magazine staff writer John Cohen. More in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Now back to more of producer Alex Hoyer's conversation with science journalists Carl Gierstorfer and John Cohen, who, by the way, will be part of a panel discussion tonight at 7 at Washington University's Graham Chapel. As both of you tell science stories, science is tough sometimes, and it's hard to understand. John, how do you go about making science relatable? It's always a challenge, and the way to do it that's effective, I think, is to almost hide it so that people don't know that, um, you know, a little sugar helps the medicine go down. People don't even know they're learning things. I think if you're didactic and too professorial about things, you lose people right and left. I try to show real people going through real experiences and not simply tell. It's about showing and not simply telling. And by showing scenes and by introducing individuals who either are living with a virus or who are at risk of becoming infected or who are helping people who are infected or are helping people not get infected, and by letting them tell their stories and showing it through their eyes on the ground, and if I do my job right, you're smelling the place, you're feeling the place, you're hearing the place. And I'm not talking about simply using video because that's almost cheating. That gives (laughs) you a, a leg up. When I have to do this in print, I'm restricted to my words, and I have to take you there, and I have to use the imagery that I can create with words and with photographs and video if possible and audio if possible, but you have to feel it. And then by that time, I can slip in the most technical information in the world, and I can talk to, talk about the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation and not lose Which you is? immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mutation that occurs on some white blood cells that make people resistant to becoming infected by HIV. But I can't talk to you about the CCR5 32, Delta 32 mutation unless I make you care about a person. And if I tell you about a person, Timothy Ray Brown, who was cured, the only person in the world cured of his HIV infection because he had a bone marrow transplant to cure his leukemia and his doctor gave him the immune system from someone who had that mutation to make his own body resistant to the HIV that was in it and that ultimately helped cure him. Then I can hook you and grab you and you'll hear this blur of words, CCR5, Delta 32 mutation that makes any kid want to just run for the hills Mm -hmm. and maybe you'll hear it. But I have to frame it in a way that you care. I have to make you care. And if I don't make you care, you won't learn and listen, Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately understand the real deeper issues, which ultimately are technical and scientific. They are. There's no escaping it. But there's a way to do it 
that uh, puts a little sugar around the medicine. Mm-hmm. What about you, Carl, in terms of making science relatable? After all, there are millions of people who still deny that climate change is, is happening. Well, that's a tough one. You know, there are still millions of people who don't uh, vaccinate their children. Um, I'd like to take them to Liberia and show them what happens if you're exposed to a disease where there is no vaccine. And then I would ask them whether they still would do that. Um, But knowing that you can't take them to Liberia, how do you, through your work, make science relatable? Which which brings me to the point, I've been thinking very hard about that. And in my Ebola documentary, I was, lucky is the wrong word, but I found that story of that father who was, in the end, accused of 20-fold murder, and that was the word that people used, because he took his son prematurely out of quarantine. That was a stupid decision, brought him back to the village. The son got sick, infected, not only the father, infected the whole family, and the father was the only one to survive in his family. His four children died. His wife died. He himself was infected, but he survived. And more than a dozen people died in the village. And this was just because of a simple, stupid decision. It's like if you would drive too fast with your car and you kill 20 people. It can just happen like that. Ebola was a situation that had, that amplified these human conditions. Suddenly, people were made responsible for the death of other people where some help, health workers were growing larger than themselves. You know, they became real heroes, and they found a sense in their lives. And for me, I understood that if I follow these stories, I can tell the story of Ebola, but I can tell something bigger, something which we all can relate to, which are stories about guilt and redemption and stories about what do I do if a situation arises in my life where I have to make a decision and I also have to bear the consequences of that decision? I was suddenly reminded of really of all these existentialist novels of Sartre and Camus. You know, they created these conditions to ask the question, what would you do? How would you act? Would you be brave or wouldn't you be brave? And in Liberia, I saw a lot of people being very, very brave. For me, it was one of the most inspiring times in my life. Also, I saw a lot of people die, but I, I saw so many, so much bravery and so many acts of humanity that I tried to document that in my film. And I tried to bring that in my film and through that tell a story of Ebola, but then also tell a human story which we can relate to. And I think the themes, we have been telling these themes since antiquity. You know, we have been telling hero stories or tragic stories or it's always the themes they reappear. And I try to remind myself, you know, where could I identify one of these themes? And then, like John said, weave the science in, uh, but never lose sight that we as humans, we really like to follow these stories. And if we can tell these stories in such a way, and they happen in such a way more often than you would think, uh, then you can grip them and you can win them for your cause. With telling these stories, what's next for you, Carl? And, and then John, same question. 
For me, is I'm following a story now in, per, in the Peruvian Amazon uh, where um, there are isolated tribes, uh, tribes that live without any contact to the outside world. But they live in an area where there's a lot of trouble brewing, illegal gold mining, narco-trafficking, illegal logging. So the outside world is encroaching into their habitat, so to speak. Uh, and I'm following a project with the Peruvian Ministerio de Cultura who tries to manage that situation, uh, which is almost an impossible fight, uh, but they are trying very hard. And uh, I just returned from a trip uh, in January, and I'll go back there and continue filming. John? So I'm really interested in problems and solutions. And that's the engine to the stories that I tell. And so now, and again, I've received support from Pulitzer Center. I'm collaborating again with Science Magazine and the PBS NewsHour to do a project in Nigeria and in Russia and in the United States that looks at the biggest problems and asks the simple question, who are the people at the front trying to solve it? I don't like wagging a finger at places and saying, you know, you're bad, you're blowing it. I'd much rather say, we know the problems exist. That's what the data say, the data speak. What's being done? What are the obstacles? And that conflict of trying to solve a problem I think is the engine of all great, powerful stories. And so that's what I'm, I'm working on now is trying to explain how these places that are struggling with severe problems are trying to make things better and who are the people at the front and what are they accomplishing. You are both going to be part of a discussion that's happening tonight at 7 at Graham Chapel on the Danforth campus at Washington University. What could uh, people hope to expect if, uh, if they go there? John? Well, I hope that we can take people places they haven't been before, tell them things they don't know. News is stuff that's new. And I, and I hope that when people learn more about what's happening around the world and in their own backyard with these diseases, they'll have more concern about trying to solve problems and more compassion for people who are suffering. With HIV and AIDS, there's a tremendous amount of discrimination that occurs that fuels the spread of the virus throughout the world, including in this country. I hope to make people more aware of how that stigma and discrimination actually makes matters worse. And Carl, what would you hope that you can impart? I would say also that I would like to take the audience to Liberia and to the times of the outbreak and maybe challenge certain assumptions people had uh, and show them that sometimes the situation is very different if you're spending a lot of time investigating one topic and spending a lot of time at one place, which unfortunately in these days being a journalist and a docu documentary filmmaker, it's not that easy anymore because everything has to be quick and everything has to fit into a, into a certain category. Um, that's why I'm so grateful that the Pulitzer Center is supporting us uh, in, in that work. Uh, and I want to give back a little bit because I feel very privileged that I can go to these places uh, and listen to the people and have enough time to be on the ground. And I would like to share these experiences, and I hope uh, that uh, I can give that back to the audience. Alex, can I say one other thing? I mean, journalism is sure. withering all over the place. We see our colleagues losing their jobs. We see newspapers folding, radio and TV stations having trouble. And the Pulitzer Center is odd because it actually funds journalism. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't have another agenda. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think in this uh, day and age, uh, we don't 
simply need philanthropists purchasing large uh, media organizations to tell us uh, what to think, that it helps to have just on-the-ground journalists who do their work independently as possible. And it's expensive. It's expensive. And so, you know, the the Pulitzer family that came from this city deserves Mm -hmm. a tremendous clap on the back for funding journalism without any other agenda. Let people just go out, report what they see, and try to tell the truth with facts and with accuracy in a time and place when we are being accused of being the enemy of the people. We're not. We're here to do a really important job, and this is uh, a great honor and privilege to be able to do it with this help. So I'm just deeply grateful. Well, you're not going to have an argument from me on that. John Cohen and uh, Carl Gierstorfer, thanks so much for spending some time with me. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was science journalists Carl Gierstorfer and John Cohen speaking with producer Alex Hoyer. Gierstorfer and Cohen will be part of a panel discussion tonight at 7 at Washington University's Graham Chapel. The topic is HIV-AIDS and the Ebola virus. Archived versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.